Chapter 19 Torres Straits During the night of the 27th or 28th of December, the Nautilus left the shores of Vanakoro with great speed. Her course was southwesterly, and in three days she had gone over the 750 leagues that separated it from La Perusa's group and the southeast point of Papua. Early on the 1st of January, 1868, Conseil joined me on the platform. Master, will you permit me to wish you a happy new year? What? Conseil? Exactly as if I was at Paris, in my study, at the Jardin des Plantes? Well, I accept your good wishes and thank you for them. Only I will ask you what you mean by a happy new year, under our circumstances. Do you mean the year that will bring us to the end of our imprisonment? Or the year that sees us continue this strange voyage? Really, I do not know how to answer, Master. We are sure to see curious things, and for the last two months we have not had time for ennui. The last marvel is always the most astonishing, and if we continue this progression, I do not know how it will end. It is my opinion that we shall never see again the like. I think, then, with no offence to Master, that a happy year would be one in which we could see everything. On January the 2nd we had made 11,340 miles, or 5,250 French leagues, since our starting point in the Japan Seas. Before the ship's head stretched the dangerous shores of the Coral Sea on the northeast coast of Australia. Our boat lay along some miles from the redoubtable bank on which Cook's vessel was lost, June 10th, 1770. The boat in which Cook was struck on a rock, and if it did not sink, it was owing to a piece of the coral that was broken by the shock and fixed itself in the broken keel. I had wished to visit the reef, 360 leagues long, against which the sea, always rough, broke with great violence, with a noise like thunder. But just then the inclined plains drew the Nautilus down to a great depth, and I could see nothing of the high coral walls. I had to content myself with the different specimens of fish brought up by the nets. I remarked, among others, some germons, a species of mackerel as large as a tunny with bluish sides, and striped with transverse bands that disappear with the animal's life. These fish followed us in shoals, and furnished us with very delicate food. We took also a large number of gilt heads, about one and a half inches long, tasting like dories, and flying parapets like submarine swallows, which in dark nights light alternately the air and the water with their phosphorescent light. Among the mollusks and zoophytes, I found in the meshes of the net several species of alconarians, achini, hammers, spurs, dials, cerites, and hyalai. The flora was represented by beautiful floating seaweeds, laminarii, and macrocytes, impregnated with the mucilage which transudes through their pores, and among which I gathered an admirable Nemastorma galeanoris that was classed among the natural curiosities of the museum. Two days after crossing the Coral Sea, January the 4th, we sighted the Papuan coasts. On this occasion, Captain Nemo informed me that his intention was to get into the Indian Ocean by the Strait of Torres. His communication ended there. The Torres Straits are nearly 34 leagues wide, but they are obstructed by an innumerable quantity of islands, islets, breakers and rocks that make its navigation almost impracticable, so that Captain Nemo took all needful precautions to cross them. The Nautilus, floating betwixt wind and water, went at a moderate pace. Her screw, like a cetacean's tail, beat the waves slowly. Profiting by this, I and my two companions went up onto the deserted platform. Before us was the steersman's cage, and I expected that Captain Nemo was there directing the course of the Nautilus. 
I had before me the excellent charts of the Strait of Torres made out by the hydrographical engineer Vincendon Dumoulin. These and Captain King's are the best charts that clear the intricacies of this strait, and I consulted them attentively. Round the Nautilus the sea dashed furiously. The course of the waves that went from southeast to northwest at the rate of two and a half miles broke on the coral that showed itself here and there. This is a bad sea, remarked Ned Land. Detestable indeed, and one that does not suit a boat like the Nautilus. The captain must be very sure of his route, for I see there pieces of coral that would do for its keel if it only touched them slightly. Indeed, the situation was dangerous, but the Nautilus seemed to slide like magic off these rocks. It did not follow the routes of the Astrolabe and the Zélé exactly, for they proved fatal to Dumont d'Urville. It bore more northwards, coasted the island of Murray, and came back to the southwest towards Cumberland Passage. I thought it was going to pass it by when, going back to the northwest, it went through a large quantity of islands and islets, little known, towards the island sound and Calamove. I wondered if Captain Nemo, foolishly imprudent, would steer his vessel into that pass where Dumont d'Urville's two corvettes touched, when, swerving again and cutting straight through to the west, he steered for the island of Gilboa. It was then three in the afternoon. The tide began to recede, being quite full. The Nautilus approached the island that I still saw with its remarkable border of screw pines. He stood off at about two miles distant. Suddenly a shock overthrew me. The Nautilus just touched a rock and stayed immovable, lying lightly to port side. When I rose, I perceived Captain Nemo and his lieutenant on the platform. They were examining the situation of the vessel and exchanging words in their incomprehensible dialect. She was situated thus. Two miles on the starboard side appeared Gilboa, stretching from north to west like an immense arm. Towards the south and east some coral showed itself, left by the ebb. We had run aground and in one of those seas where the tides are middling, a sorry matter for the floating of the Nautilus. However, the vessel had not suffered, for her keel was solidly joined. But if she could neither glide off nor move, she ran the risk of being forever fastened to these rocks, and then Captain Nemo's submarine vessel would be done for. I was reflecting thus when the captain, cool and calm, always master of himself, approached me. "'An accident?' I asked. "'No, uh, an incident. "'But an accident that will oblige you, perhaps, to become an inhabitant of this land from which you flee.' Captain Nemo looked at me curiously and made a negative gesture, as much as to say that nothing would force him to set foot on terra firma again. Then he said, "'Besides, Monsieur Aranax, the Nautilus is not lost. It will carry you yet into the midst of the marvels of the ocean. Our voyage has only begun, and I do not wish to be deprived so soon of the honour of your company.' "'However, Captain Nemo,' I replied, without noticing the ironical turn of his phrase, "'the Nautilus ran aground in open sea.' Now the tides are not strong in the Pacific, and if you cannot lighten the Nautilus, I do not see how it will be reinflated. The tides are not strong in the Pacific, you are right there, Professor, but in Torres Straits one finds still a difference of a yard and a half between the level of high and low seas. Today is January the 4th, and in five days the moon will be full. Now I shall be very much astonished if that complaisant satellite does not raise these masses of water sufficiently and render me a service that I should be indebted to her for. Having said this, Captain Nemo, followed by his lieutenant, redescended to the interior of the Nautilus. As to the vessel, it moved not, and was immovable, as if the coralline polypi had already walled it up with their indestructible cement. "'Well, sir,' said Ned Land, who came up to me after the departure of the captain. "'Well, friend Ned, 
we will wait patiently for the tide on the ninth instant, for it appears that the moon will have the goodness to put it off again. Really? Really. And this captain is not going to cast anchor at all, since the tide will suffice? said Conseil simply. The Canadian looked at Conseil, then shrugged his shoulders. Sir, you may believe me when I tell you that this piece of iron will navigate neither on nor under the sea again. It is only fit to be sold for its weight. I think, therefore, that the time has come to part company with Captain Nemo. Friend Ned, I do not despair of this stout Nautilus, as you do, and in four days we shall know what to hold on to the Pacific tides. Besides, flight might be possible if we were in sight of the English or Provencal coasts, but on the Papuan shores it is another thing, and it will be time enough to come to that extremity if the Nautilus does not recover itself again, which I look upon as a grave event. But do they know at least how to act circumspectly? There is an island. On that island there are trees, under those trees, terrestrial animals, bearers of cutlets and roast beef to which I would willingly give a trial. In this Fred Ned is right, said Conseil, and I agree with him. Could not Master obtain permission from his friend Captain Nemo to put us on land, if only so as not to lose the habit of treading on the solid part of our planet? I can ask him, but he will refuse. Will Master risk it? asked Conseil, and we shall know how to rely upon the captain's amiability. To my great surprise, Captain Nemo gave me the permission I asked for, and he gave it very agreeably, without even extracting from me a promise to return to the vessel. But flight across New Guinea might be very perilous, and I should not have cancelled Ned Land to attempt it. Better to be a prisoner on board the Nautilus than to fall into the hands of the natives. At eight o'clock, armed with guns and hatchets, we got off the Nautilus. The sea was pretty calm. A slight breeze blew on land. Conseil and I rowing, we sped along quickly, and Ned steered in the straight passage that the breakers let between them. The boat was well handled and moved rapidly. Ned Land could not restrain his joy. He was like a prisoner that had escaped from prison and knew not what that it was necessary to re-enter it. Meat! We are going to eat some meat! And what meat! he replied. Real game! No bread indeed! I do not say that fish is not good. We must not abuse it, but a piece of fresh venison grilled on live coals will agreeably vary her ordinary course. Gourmand, said Conseil, he makes my mouth water. It remains to be seen, I said, if these forests are full of game, and if the game is not such as will hunt the hunter himself. Well said, Monsieur Aronnax, replied the Canadian, whose teeth seemed sharpened like the edge of a hatchet, but I will eat tiger, loin of tiger, if there's no other quadruped on this island. Friend Ned is uneasy about it, said Conseil. Whatever it may be, continued Ned Land, every animal with four paws without feathers, or with two paws without feathers, will be saluted by my first shot. Very well, Master Land's imprudence is a beginning. Never fear, Monsieur Aronnax, replied the Canadian. I do not want twenty-five minutes to offer you a dish of my sort. At half-past eight, the Nautilus boat ran softly aground on a heavy sand, after having happily passed the coral reef that surrounds the island of Gilboa.